Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Minority. It started by Hutu nationalists in the capital of Kigali, 
that genocide spread throughout the country with shocking speed and brutality as ordinary citizens were incited initially by the Belgium, then the genocide itself by local officials and the Hutu power government to take up arms against their neighbors. By the time the Tutsi-led Rwanda's Patriarch Front gained control of the country through a military offensive in early July, Hundreds of thousands of Rwandans were dead, and two million refugees, mainly Hutus, fled Rwanda, exacerbating what had already become a full-blown humanitarian crisis. My guest today, Malaka Umwaharo, is a young actor, spoken word poet, performer, singer, and social justice artist. She will be performing in the central character nine other actors in the critically acclaimed play Miracle in Rwanda, which will be held at the Lion Theater on Theater Row on Off-Broadway beginning April 4, 2019. The run of the play coincides with the 25th anniversary of the historic massacre in Rwanda. The play is written by Leslie Lewis and Edward Volga, and it's based on the inspiring real-life accounting of Rwandan genocide survivor, Imakulu, and I might be pronouncing these names wrong, so I'm sorry. Miss Miss Wamaharo is here with us now, yes. so I'm going to welcome her to the show. Greetings. Greetings. Thank you How so you? much for having me. I'm I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm looking forward to talking with you about yourself and, and the massacre and the play. So tell me yes, a little about yourself. You were born in Rwanda? Mal- yes, my name is Malaika Uamahoro, and I was born in Rwanda in 1990. Um, three months after I was born, we had to flee the country, and I grew up in Uganda, the neighboring country to Rwanda. And I grew up there for seven years, and um, I lived with my family. Uh, and then we moved to the States, and I did a little bit of my education here. Then when things were safer in Rwanda in 2001, uh, we moved back to Rwanda. And I lived there until 2013 when I was given a scholarship to study uh, the theater arts at Fordham University here in New York. Wow. Well, you know, I interviewed a filmmaker a few years back about her movie, God Sleeps in Rwanda, and that, and uh-huh. that was produced by Kimberly Aquaro and Stacey Sherman. And according to the mm-hmm. film, after the massacre, mostly women were left. Is that accurate? Well, um, you know, the genocide uh, against the Tutsi really did not discriminate against men and women and children or elderly, but um, a lot of the a lot of the, you know, people who died were men. And so, yes, there were many widows left and many orphans left um, just because it was the men who would actually, um, you know, try to uh, fend for the families who were in hiding and things like that. So it was very difficult for them to survive. Well, I heard that uh, prior to the massacre, it was basically a, a patriarchal society with women having little power, but the massacre changed that where women became a big part of the government and and so forth. 
Can you tell me about that? Right. Yeah, that is uh, that is accurate. So, um, in our culture, actually, in in the Rwandan culture, women actually do have a lot of um, position and power, and you know, and a lot of say in a lot of things that happen. But during the time of the genocide and just uh, around that period, um, it was men who were mo- mostly in charge. And um, when after the genocide, we wanted to uh, bring back our culture and bring back our values. And so part of this was to put women in positions of parliament, in positions um, where they could, they could be of power and have a say and have a voice in order to like bring back our culture and bring back our unity. So this is something that is now uh, very highly effective in Rwanda at the moment, where we have 64% of women in parliament, which is amazing. <laughs> Yes. Well, what is the society like now? I mean, has there been a, a forgiveness, or is the society mm. thriving now, or what is it? Yes. What's happening? Uh, so what's happening now is really actually very interesting. We are really thriving. We are considered one of the most peaceful countries in the world, one of the cleanest countries in the world. Uh, we have great mm. leadership, a leadership that, um, again, bringing back our culture from what we knew before the colonials came where we were unified people. So we were not identified as Hutus, Tutsis, or Twa, but we were identified as Rwandans. And actually being a Hutu, Tutsi, or Twa was a social economical class thing, you know? So if you had 10 cows, you were considered Tutsi. If you had less than 10 cows, considered Hutus. If you had no cows, you had Twa. And that kind of like put you on the scale of like, what do you do economically, you know? But when the colonialists came, they made it about ethnicity. They made it, and this is what created the divide and the hatred. So what our government is doing now and our leadership is doing now is bringing back um, bringing back our culture in the sense that, you know, we are all Rwandans, so we're no longer ha- we no longer have the labels of Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa, but we have passports that say that we are Rwandans, which is something that is so empowering and unifies us and is really helping us to thrive and build the country as a unified people. I'm glad to hear that. Well, what is the official language of Rwanda? Are there a few different spoken languages there? No, actually, which is um which is again why the genocide uh the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda was so um unique in in the sense that the the Rwandan people, we share the same language. We share the same culture. So, we share the same cult- uh, language. The language is Kinyarwanda, and uh we have the same culture. We pray to the same gods. So, really for us to turn against each other was really brothers turning against brothers. There was nothing there to really uh, differentiate us. Um, only these identities, ID cards, you know, that were, uh, you know, distributed by the government. But other than that, there really isn't anything that could have, you know, made be like, okay, they speak this language or they speak with this dialect. We're going to kill them because they don't belong here. No, we had the same language, same culture, we are the same people. Well, then what prompted them? I mean, would you, you know your neighbor, you know your friend. What would yes. prompt you to pick up a, a machete and go after your neighbor? I mean, what Well, what started that, that they did that? Right. So the Belgians arrived in about, I think, 1932, and um, they started to take what Rwandans had in their culture. So we had we had our we had our um 
uh, social economical classes, like, you know, the Hutus, Tutsis, and Tuas, but we also had our clans, and clans are, you know, like, we had a frog clan and a bird clan, and we had, we had our, our, our culture and, and how we were organized in that sense, but when the Belgians ca- came, they saw very unified people, and they, they wanted to take rule, but you can't really rule over a, a people who is organized and who is um, unified. So what you have to do is to divide those people. So they started to take what we had as a social economical class and divide that into an ethnic class, make it an ethnic class. So they would take the people who were Tutsi and say, oh, you guys are taller and have more slender noses. You are now Tutsi and here's your identity card. Oh, you guys are Hutu, you guys are shorter and here's your identity card. Oh, you guys are Twa, you live in the forest and here's your identity card. And then rumors started to develop, and 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 then uh, the the Tutsis, that the people they had made Tutsis in 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 ethnic terms, were now uh, favored and were given more power. So that started to de- that started to develop into jealousy and to hatred, and from there, uh, you know, it became impossible to unify um, these groups that we had now you know started to favor one on top of the other, and then also. So when the Hutus now took power, they were like, oh, we're going to kick you guys out of school. We're going to not give you guys medical, um, you know, insurance or support. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to we're going to really create this divide. So that's it's it's it started. I would I would say it really did start um, with when the colonialists came to Rwanda, because before that we did live in harmony and there was no problem. Unfortunately, that is usually the, the, the war strategy to divide and conquer, and it always works. Exactly. Yes, that well, is what they use in it. Well, let me get back to you because uh, I understand you're a singer. Uh, do you have any recordings or anything like that out? <laughs> Actually, I, I I have a couple of things that are out, but... Um, in the sense that they're in my circles, but I'm I'm still exploring music because when I was younger, I used to sing all the time, and um, I actually got in trouble for it because I would sing in class, I would sing in church, like I was singing everywhere. And then my parents moved me to a French school uh, where I was learning. I was a complete anglophone, and when I was 15, they were like, we're putting you in a French school. So I was now studying math in French, geography in French, everything in French. So I no longer had like the time or the luxury that I had to like keep singing because I really had to focus on my studies because it was a very tough school like if you failed they would um, take you back a whole year so I really had to focus and so uh, my love for music was transformed into poetry I was I was writing you know I was writing instead of like actually singing and now that I'm finally finished with school I'm starting to rediscover my voice and to, you know, find my voice again. So pretty soon everyone will be able to, to start hearing some of my music, but more of my poetry is out there and I'm just breaking into the music industry once again. Well, for those who do not understand, can you explain what a social justice artist is? Okay. A social justice artist is an artist who, um, 
looks at issues within their community or, you know, that are happening around them, say, for example, the environment or racism or, um, you know, other, other issues that are happening. And they take these issues and they make it into art forms because a lot of times, yes, there can be uh, conferences and, you know, textbooks that try to, um, try to, uh, you know, address these issues, but art is actually a really effective way to address these issues and to actually get people to listen and to see. So a lot of my poetry uh, and songs go around uh, talking about, for example, unity and peace, because these are the things that really affected my life, really made me move around, you know. And so um, a lot of my work is focused on let's, you know, let's be unified. Let's, let's create peace, you know, let's deal with the issues, um, you know, around us, you know, let's empower women. So a social justice artist is somebody who will look at the issues around them and put them in art form uh, in order for um, the people to consume because art is something that is often consumed by so many people and it's actually a great way to learn and to entertain and educate. Well, um, you attended Fordham University and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater. What attracted you to uh, the acting profession? Um, Okay, so as a child, I was always an artist. So like I said, I was always singing or I was always, um, like if it was Sunday school, I was always taking part in the like Christmas plays and I would like get the big roles. I would be Jesus even though I was a little girl and um you know, I would always just really be attracted to the arts. And I grew up with a family of artists. I mean, my mom was an interior designer. My grandma was a tailor. My aunts were um, actresses and dancers. And my uncles, too, were, like, visual artists. So I was always kind of around artists. And um, I feel like I was always acting, even though, like, I was really into singing, but I was always acting. And as I, as I grew older and, and when I moved back to Rwanda, I actually joined one of the leading um, theater companies, which is called Mashirika Performing Arts. And with them, I started to tour, even though I was in school, we started to do UK tours and, you know, mm. and that's something that, that I realized like, oh, I really want to make this a career. And with acting, you know, you can really take singing and make it a part of it and poetry and make it a part of it. You know, there's so many things that I can do with acting that allows me to be a versatile um, artist, really. Uh, do you, did you study dance? Because dance is often part of theater. Um, when I was uh, back home in Rwanda, um, I did, with Mashirka Performing Arts, we did do a lot of, like, traditional dance training and contemporary dance training. So in that um, in that realm yeah I guess I I did study dance but not at school not at Fordham I didn't study dance at Fordham well you're presently in rehearsal doing Miracle in Rwanda Um, yeah tell me tell me about that process well Miracle in Rwanda is um, a one-woman show and uh, it is based off of the story of Immaculate Ilibagiza who um who at the time uh, during the genocide against the Tutsi was uh, caused to flee her home and go into, um, you know, refuge at a pastor's house. And this pastor was able to hide her and seven other women in a bathroom. And um, so this story, Miracle in Rwanda, is 
is Immaculate experience in that bathroom and everything she goes through. And in that bathroom, she really finds a connection with God and is able to uh, not only survive the genocide that is happening around her, but also um, it's an incredible story of forgiveness, how she was able to forgive all of uh, to forgive the people who had taken her family away from her because her whole family was massacred. So this is a, it's not only a story of survival, but an incredible story of forgiveness and how she was able to achieve that. Well, who, who was the minister? Was he a European that he didn't get massacred himself? No. So during the genocide, there was two extremists. There was the Tutsis who were the, who were the ones being sought after. And, um, also, there was what we like to call the moderate Hutus. So the, the, the Hutus who who did not agree with the killings. And there were many, many, many moderate Hutus who decided, even though they were at risk, uh, you know, themselves and, their, and would put their families at risk as well by hiding these people, they would rather be at risk than take part in such atrocities. So the pastor... Is, uh, is at, he was actually a Rwandan and a moderate Hutu who decided to hide, to take in eight women, even though uh, if the killers had found out, he, they would have killed him, his family, and, of course, the, the Tutsis who were hiding in, in, in his bathroom. Now, you said uh, it's a one-woman play, so no other character is in the play but you? <laughs> Yes, there's no other characters but me. So I'm in total playing uh, 10 characters. And I'm so I'm shifting from me to the pastor, to the ladies in the, in the bathroom, to, you know, the killer, you know. And just exploring all, this, all these roles has really shown me that um, as a human, we, we have all of these things in us. We can, we can decide to be somebody who saves someone. We can decide to be somebody who harms somebody else. We can decide to be all of these things. We have the choices within us because literally every day at rehearsal, I make these choices and I invest in them. And it's just a matter of, you know, where are we putting our energy or who do we want to be, you know, but the power is in us, which is also something that I discovered with Immaculate that, you know, she decided that she had the power to forgive and to let go of that burden of, of hatred, you know, and, you know, and rise above that. So that's really something that I've been able to discover, um, the power of the choices that we have and what we can do, what we're able to do as humans. Now that massacre, it lasted a hundred days or, or, or more. Yeah, it lasted a hundred days. So it went from the, the president of Rwanda's plane was shot April 6, 1994, and the massacre started the next day, April 7, 1994, and it went up until uh, July 1st, yes, July 1st, 1994. And the way it finally stopped was that the, the uh, patriarchal army came in and stopped it, or... How did it find yeah, the end? So, um, what happened was there was, so like I said, like remember when I said that I was born in Rwanda and then uh, I had to flee to Uganda? So over the years, like in 1959 and 1962, over the years there had been uh, 
genocides against the Tutsi, but they were on a smaller scale. So not like what happened in 1994, but they were on a smaller scale. So these um, uh, genocides made Tutsis like flee. Like, for example, my grandma fled to Uganda in 1959. And so there were many Rwandan families living in refuge in Congo, in um, in Uganda, in Tanzania. And because of this oppression that they were facing, that they couldn't come back to the country, they decided to join forces and to make the Rwandan Patriotic Front. So uh, in 1990, they actually tried to come back and take um, uh, and, and share leadership with the, with the, the government at that time, but uh, they did not succeed. So they had to retali- they had to retaliate. And then they, you know, so, but they were, they were, they were still planning. It was still in the plans to come back and to save the Tutsi people who were being, you know, um, who, who were being killed, who were being oppressed. So in 1994, when the genocide happened and there was no international, uh, inter, inter, international um, forces intervening to help stop the genocide, the RPF came together once again and decided, you know what, these are our people and no one is going to save them unless we save them. So they joined forces again and they came back and um, they took power over, they took back the power and they decided to make things right, no longer putting one ethnicity on top of the other, but to share power and to remove uh, these labels that cause so much um, divide and hatred and a genocide. Well, tell me, um, so this is uh, about you being at the Apollo Theater. Was that mm-hmm. exciting for you? Went and, and that was did, uh, so was that... exciting. Yes, that was so exciting for me, you know. So as I told you, I studied at Fordham University here um, in New York, in, Man- in Manhattan, actually. And, um, you know, occasionally I'd go to Harlem and, uh, you know, always pass the Apollo and I'd be like, one day I'm going to perform here. One day mm-hmm. I'm going to perform here. And then I'd al- I'd also see, like, of course, like I, I, I'd look at amateur night, you know, and find and find things online of like who has performed there. And I, I've seen the Michael Jackson perform there and, you know, just different people great artists performed there and I was like wow like one day it's going to happen one day it's going to happen and I couldn't believe it when Leslie told me she was like you're going to perform 10 minutes of the show at the Apollo and I was like whoa that's so crazy so I was so happy that you know something I had dreamed and wished for actually came true and it was and it was actually it was it was also really important that you know it was around the women of the world you know and so it, it was. I was telling an incredible story of an incredible woman um, who was able to to survive and to forgive. And you know, there was just so many incredible stories on stage that day. And I was just so happy that I could have been one of them. Well, you have a very supportive family. Um, I think it's your mother, grandmother, father, and, and two sisters. Tell me a little bit about your family. <laughs> They're so they're so lovely. Uh, my grandmother, and my mom, you know, they they check on me. They're like, "Hi, you're not calling us. Is everything okay? How are things in rehearsal?" And I'm like, "Mom is going great." She's like, "Yeah, tell me everything." They were also really excited about the Apollo. Um, one time, my grandma came 
to New York to visit, and I took her to the Apollo, and she was taking pictures with the, the, the stars at the Apollo. And so when I was like, Grandma, you remember that place? And she was just so excited. She's like, I can't believe you're going to do that, take pictures and things like that. So everybody back home is really excited and is really proud that I'm bringing a Rwandan story to you know, theaters in, in New York and, you know, just telling our story, telling our truth and sharing what we all went through because it's really important that um, not only our, that our story is told, but it's told by a Rwandan, you know, because a lot of times African stories get told by people who aren't African and who can't really relate or, and, and this makes, this makes, um, this makes either something be underplayed or overplayed or, you know, they just, it gets lost in the sauce somehow. So it's really an honor for not just me, but for everybody back home, um, for them to like be able to, to see the, or to hear and to know that I am telling a Rwandan story and, you know, they, they just feel really proud and really happy about that. So it's so exciting. Well, how long is, um, is it a limited engagement, the miracle in Rwanda? How long is it projected to run? Right. So the run is going to be from April 4th to April 21st and with possible ex- extension to May 12th. Um, and it's going to be at the Lion Theater. And it's, yeah, eight shows a week. So I really hope to catch you there. Are you coming? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> I can't wait and to I see you there. That's going to be good. Well, the theater oh, it's going to be at the, at the West 42nd Street, so people know. Yes, at the Lion Theater, Theater Wells. And I also want to say, if you want to buy tickets, you can call 844-483-9008. So uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. So is there anything you'd like to say to the audience before we, we close? Well, I'd also like to say, well, I'd like to thank you, first of all. And, you know, there's so many people. It is a one-woman show, but there's so many people who are part of this production that i just like to thank. You know, my, my director is working really hard to make sure all of I, I get everything I need. There's Magic Theater Company, Leslie Lewis, uh, the United Nations, Aquity Productions, our lighting and design, and the Lion Theater so I just want to thank all of those people for making this possible, for making it possible for me to bring a Rwandan story to stages in the United States. It's, it's amazing and it's so great. And I hope to see well, everybody I'll, there. <laughs> I'll be there. And I want to thank you, Miss. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name. It's Olamahora. There you go. You got it. <laughs> okay, great. I want to thank you yeah. for coming on the show. And, um, I'm Deirdre Shuley, your host. This is Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And I want to thank my audience for making my topic topically yours. And very good luck with the play Miracle in Rwanda. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And we're going to end the show with Meza Neza. That's King James mm-hmm. <laughs> Gusimavuzao, zikufasha kuhinduri mnufire Kuaramba vanshe, harikoa mumu ya maso Tuwarahemute, uje wikaya